And then he says here in chapter 5, verse 1, the elders who are among you I exhort, and I am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, he, he, when he appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So as Peter's writing, wrapping up this epistle, one that he would say where he wrote briefly about various exhortations, this exhortation goes toward Kentucky, the pastors, the leaders of the church. But, I mean, it's certainly principle for leaders, people serving in church, and there's principles there for anyone in leadership, whether, you know, you're a husband or a dad or a mother or whatever. There's, there's principles there. But, of course, the fullest context is leading a local church in the body of Christ. We see right away the term elders, shepherd, a verb action. So elders is a noun, verse 1. Shepherd is a verb action, being told what to do. And then overseers is another noun. And those three terms are used interchangeably in the New Testament. Elder, shepherd, overseer. Overseer is also translated as bishop, by which we get the word bishop. And elders is, uh, when he says fellow elder, it's soon presbytery in the Greek, from which we get, uh, it's a co-presbyterian. So if you don't know much about church history and the various names of denominations, uh, the, the bishop, overseer bishop, is osco episkopos in the Greek, from which we get Episcopalian, so like the Church of England, Episcopalian, uh, leadership heavy by one person. Um, uh, that's the idea there. So the Archbishop of Canterbury is the like the Pope of the Anglican Church, Church of England, going back to Reformation. And we get that term from right here, this, this idea of one ruler over them all, which the Archbishop of Canterbury still is, similar to the Catholic model of the Pope, but different, okay? And then Presbyterian is, what we, is where you get the term Presbyterian from as well, for government, which the Scottish Presbyterian, the Reformers during the Reformation in Scotland, were the ones that really took this, and there's various denominations like the Brethren, and again, Presbyterians, we get this term from. So what you really see in these opening verses is historically what men have taken to become two models of church government. A collective group, Presbyterian elders, or one key leader, uh, a bishop over a region, and like, like in the Catholics have like the Pope, cardinals, bishops, and whatnot. I just bring it up because it just gives an idea to the different denominations throughout church history, particularly in the post-Reformation era, and where these models come from, and they come from this, a splitting of these concepts. Um, in the Calvary Chapel movement, we tend to have that balance, as always, no surprise there, of these two thought processes. And we would say that in, the, in most cases of a Calvary Chapel church, you have a senior pastor that leads the church with uh, other elders together collectively. So at Calvary Costa Mesa, Brian Broderson is a senior pastor, and there's a board of elders spiritually that help guide him and lead him in the church. And in America, we have a dual responsibility because it's not just uh, church government under the Lord, leading for the Lord, but it's also because in America we have the nonprofit status for churches, then there's legal requirements with Caesar, okay? So you have state tax, you have state issues with government, and you have federal issues with government, and so you have requirements as a church to have structures that Caesar, for lack of a better term, recognizes, okay? So 
you can have a church model and you can have the Caesar model or you can have both and, and that's basically what we have here at WG. And so I'm the senior pastor. I'm like the chief bishop overseer of the church. We have a board of elders made up of pastors like Brian Jameson and Jeremy Foster, Brian Nixon being another one who weighs in on things. And we often seek the counsel of Brian Broderson, who's my pastor, when we face various things that we think might be a little tricky or challenging. That's kind of like, uh, that's kind of like Batman and the Batphone. You know, we use that one for special occasions when we call Brian Broderson, but you know, he always answers too, because he knows I don't waste his time. If I'm calling him, I got a good reason, and it's a vice versa. It's good to have people like that in your life, by the way. So, uh, if you're familiar with Brit American Reality LA and the Reality Churches, we're identical to that structure. Uh, he has the same structure as we do. So often, Pastor Chuck would say, he would point to the book of Acts and look at Peter with the 12 apostles, and he'd say, this is the biblical structure where you have a key leader, Peter, like a bishop, with other apostles, John and James and the rest, like elders, and Peter would be first among equals, but not greater than. Just like how we say in a marriage, the husband and the wife, the two become one, but someone has to lead, and we say that they're, um, they're equal, but the, the husband bears responsibility in that sense to make that final decision, and he gives an account for it. And, you know, in ministry, Pastor Chuck used to tell us at pastor's conference, he'd say, you know, you really like to have a board because when, people, when you do things people don't like, you can blame it on the board. <laughs> and I say that facetiously, but truthfully, because he said that. But there's a responsibility, and we know that if, if there's not clear, strong leadership, sometimes a board can really help exhort people like Paul would exhort Timothy. But if you have a strong leader, that's great, and that works. But sometimes, you know, strong leaders, um, they, they, in the multitude of counsel, there's wisdom, you know, and, and you need... You need people to, you need quality people around you that you can, that can complement your weaknesses and whatnot. In fact, I have to say, when, when Brian Jameson was here as our associate pastor, and we were really like a two-man team for a long time, Jameson and I think a lot alike, and I used to tell people, I'm the gospel of Matthew, he's the gospel of Mark. We say the same thing, he just says it with less words. True, that's how it is. But Jeremy's actually, in some, is, is a better fit. Um, interesting enough, I was just having this conversation with my wife the other day. I'm still the Gospel of Matthew. He's the Gospel of John. It's all flowery and just going in circles of love and, you know, and like this. And I'm just like, bup, 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 according to the scripture, bup, 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 according to the scripture, bup, 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 according to the scripture, right? Where Brian Jameson is like, Mark, immediately, 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 because it says in Mark's Gospel 29 times, immediately. And, and Brian would say what needed to be said, but he wanted to take action. And I'd be like, according to the scripture, according to the scripture, and Jeremy's like, love, kumbaya, people, you know, and so you, that's what you want. You don't want a bunch of people leading a church that are identical in personalities, and I've never tried to clone Joey, and Brian Broderson definitely never tried to clone me to be him, okay? We're influenced by leaders, yeah, and it's good. So coming back to this, when Peter is saying, hey, I'm an elder, uh, and I'm exhorting you leaders, I'm a leader, I'm an elder, I'm exhorting you leaders to, to be pastors and shepherd the church faithfully. That's the context. But I do bring this up because this is one of the few passages you get where you can, where you see these synonymous words of the noun for elders, the noun for bishops, and the verb for shepherding, by which, of course, we get the word pastor from. In Acts 20:28, 20, Paul calls for the elders from Miletus, from Ephesus, and he meets them there in Miletus, and they are elders, and then he tells them to shepherd the flock of God, verb, as overseers, bishops, which he's made them of. So again, these three words are used uh, in connection synonymously for 
title and action there in Acts 20, 20, 2017 and 2028 uh, with Paul. And then when Paul's writing to Titus, uh, he tells them to uh, appoint elders in every city there in Crete and to, that they're to be overseers over the church. So the two words are used uh, synonymously in that context. So we think of the church, of course, in the early church too, we had apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And really those first 12 apostles were unique in how they were and uh, Matthias replacing Judas, so they're in the book of Acts. And when they're gone, you don't have anything similar to that. Now, apostle means messenger. So when people talk, you know, a lot of denominations believe in apostles, and they'll call someone apostle so-and-so and such-and-such. Such. Calvary Chapel doesn't hold that model, but the idea of an apostle was a messenger. So we often say that missionaries are apostles and that they're messengers, and they go out and they share, and they plant churches, and they do things like that. And, and that makes sense. And people often say that apostles are more like the great leaders in a church, like strong leaders over a movement, like how Gail Irwin was with the Assemblies of God movement, how uh, Don McClure is with the Calvary Chapel movement, things like that, something similar. So I put all that out there, and let's bring it back in here to a spot where we can understand it. No matter what the structure is, we want to be governed by God. Because Jesus is dead, the preeminence in the church the local church and the universal church. And it is a flow down from the top. So of all those models that I just mentioned, the Episcopalian or uh, Presbyterian or, or hybrids or harmony like reality and WG, one model that does not exist is a democratic model. And see, my parents come from congregation, my dad comes from a congregationist background and this was something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer warned about over 100 years ago in the American church, or 80 years ago, that the, that the American believers were making the mistake of trying to govern the church of God from the base up instead of from the head down, from the body up instead of the head down. And he warned, and I share this about every six months, this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great disciple of Jesus Christ who died in Germany during World War II, resisting Hitler. Uh, great theologian. But he said the mistake that the American church was doomed to make was to capitulate truth for unity. And that the American church was going to, in the future, make the mistake of seeking to have democratic representation unity of the majority to guide the church, and that he warned that it would be a godless and unbelieving majority that would guide the churches of America when it went from the body up instead of the head down. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 1930s, during the German uh, expansion in Europe, but before the declaration of war uh, on December 7th, 1941 by Roosevelt, or December 8th, I believe he declared it the next day. So I say all this because Americans often think of church being like our country, which people still don't even understand completely how we're governed. Even the last election proved we don't understand the electoral vote versus the popular vote right? That was a pretty big issue, wasn't it? So again, let's take all these things and bring them back in. Jesus is to be the preeminent one in the church because he's to be the preeminent one in our lives. And as Billy Graham used to say, he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And he's meant to be Lord of all in my life and your life. And he's meant to be Lord of all over the leadership of a church. And he's meant to be Lord of all over a church movement. And he is Lord of the universe. He's King of kings, Lord of lords. He's the creator of everything. He's the sustainer of everything. And he's the judge of everything. 
And if we align our hearts individually properly with the Lord and align our homes individually properly with the Lord, we'll do just fine coming to a spirit-filled church where men and women are together seeking the Lord to be governed by God in their personal lives so they can govern and lead the church in wisdom. For as the Bible says, who is sufficient for these things? This is leadership in the church. It's lonely at the top. It's lonely at the top. And, you know, the thing about being the chief shepherd is, you know, you're under a death sentence because if it, we're called to deny ourselves and pick up our cross daily. And everyone's watching the shepherds and the shepherdesses to see how they respond in difficult times. And they're on public display and we're called to display Christ in how we handle personal crisis, social crisis, and church crisis. We're all on display. And um, it's a sobering thing. You know, James, when he wrote the early church, he said, let us not all be teachers, for we'll receive a stricter judgment. And that would seem to definitely apply to leadership. And so I think we can safely apply that in principle to pastors and leaders. But, you know, Paul would say in writing Timothy, if a man desires the work of a bishop, he desires a good thing. So it's a good desire, but it's a reverent one. And so it's important that there, there are men and women leading churches, and I do believe pastors are only men, not women. But I do use the term shepherdess because women are nurturing and have great gifts and great skills, and we need them in the church to guide the church as well. As Pastor Chuck used to say, he was the head, but Kay's the neck, you know. And he's making decisions, but she's turning that neck. And I just think that's really important because the danger of some churches based upon their government model is they put women in positions of authority they shouldn't be in, and that creates problems. And then some churches uh, suppress women, and that creates problems. The gospel's liberating, and there's neither male nor female in Christ, but we're all one. So we're equally liberated, and we're equally called to the glory of the things that God has for us. But we need to know our role, and we're each to be faithful where God has placed us. And Jeremy's not called to be the senior pastor. He's called to be the associate pastor with administrative gifts. And he's godly and he's content in that role and allows him to function fruitfully to the benefit of his church. And I'm called to be the senior pastor and the primary teacher. And much like Acts 6, we must give ourselves to word and prayer and not to serving tables. I let Jeremy worry about serving tables once a month in the gym. I need to be focused on teaching the word and being prayed up to teach the word. Amen? And we all have different roles. So it's important to understand this in a local church. And um, contextually, this really does come back to me as the senior pastor and to Broderick and uh, Garrett and Alex and, and uh, Raul now in Texas where he's at in that church, uh, that Calvary Chapel in Fort Worth. So that's our context, elders, shepherds, overseers. And look what the exhortation is. Now let's make it a little broader in principle for each of us here in the room tonight. Because I believe every scripture, every verse is profitable for us, uh, every believer. So serving, uh, we're serving the church. Okay, so that's something we can all relate to, right? Serving the church. Serving the church. Serving the church. He who's greatest in the kingdom of God is servant of all, right? So serving in the church is something we can all lay hold of and grasp. Uh, praying and seeking the mind of the Lord and coming to church with a servant 
perspective to receive and grow, but to bless and how it can serve others. And serving can be structured as it is tonight. Fred's here an hour before service to get the sound ready for Jack. You know, Jack and Toby are here getting ready. Garrett's doing things. Garrett came earlier. Uh, Sean came earlier to do what he does to set up. And then Garrett's, you know, here and doing what he does before service. And we all, there's structured serving. There's oversight of the children's ministry tonight. Broderick's here tonight. He's expected to be here tonight at a certain time to take the youth down here to the food court and have fellowship. Ross is a deacon. He's been the deacon for the youth. He's from the original wave of deacons from 12 years ago, and he's still the one. He and Anthony have been the two deacons the whole time. He's watched different. He's watched us go through like seven different youth pastor combinations in that stretch, including Alex three times, Jeremy and Brian, right? Hector, like it's been, you know, uh, Jason Wright, and uh, now Broderick, okay? And Ross, you know, Ross has been there for 12 years, so he's seen kids to start out in this church in first grade that have moved on and we prayed for and graduated in high school this last crossover. Isn't that amazing? And Ross is always the, the constant, consistent. We always say we've been here, we've watched Shoreline go through a number of different pastors and leaders in their church here at, Cal- at the Baptist Church here at Shoreline. We've been here long enough that we've seen different people come and go, so now Pastor Matt comes to us and asks us things about the history of the church that he pastors. Because we've been here for a while, just like Ross. If you want to know the history of the youth ministry, ask Ross, okay? Because he's been here the entire time. And that's serving, and that's got structure and responsibility. And, um, you know, Jeremy forgot to leave his WG card for Broderick. So I, I have my card, and I was giving it to Ross. I go, you need the pin? He goes, no, I don't want to know the pin. See, like, he doesn't, he doesn't, like, he doesn't want to know Pastor Joey's pin for my card for WG. And he's like, I'll use my card if, you're, if you can't just swipe it. I'm like, no, I'll give you the pin. He's like, no, 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 no. See, that's the man that's reverent in his ministry, right? He feels like that's not part of his stewardship to know Pastor Joey's pin on his worship generation card. I'm like, I respect that. See, he's respecting that boundary there. I'm like, hey, we're all good, man. We're family around here. It's like, it's, he goes, I, I can, I'll, I'll cover that, right? But there's structure. But then there's other ministries that aren't structured. Like, um, you know, when Mike's here, and he's not here tonight, but Debbie's husband, Mike, he always has a breath mint for me. Because um, you get pastor breath, you know, like you do. I call it pastor breath. It just, it is what it is. It's like, you can fight with Altoids and mints and different things, but the best are those little sleeve things that he always has, you know. And, and yeah, I, I forget to have Tic Tacs and stuff like that. And so I just step back a little bit more, you know. But, but when Mike's here, he's just like, he, he's, he, and he always kind of covert, too. He just walks by me like, you wouldn't even know. It's like, why did that guy just walk by Joey like that, you know. And, it's, and, you know, Mike's been security at Calvary Downey for years, and he's, in a sense, security here. But he walks by and just like, and it's like this, it's just quick. It looks like we're exchanging something in the park, you know, like click, 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 click. But it's just, it's one of those mints, and it's like, and off I go. Yeah? He sees that as his ministry. No one else has the Tic Tac ministry around here, right? <laughs> but, you know, and, and like when you, some of you come to Food and Fellowship, and you think, how can I serve? And you're serving food, you're, ter- you're, you're setting up tables, you're breaking down tables, you're looking for new people to welcome them and make them feel welcome. You're, you're helping out with kids on the playground so the parents can go get something to eat and, and be comfortable enjoying food for a minute and fellowshiping with adults when they've got a house full of kids. You know, when you got a house full of kids and you're talking to adults, like, wow, conversation with adults. You know, it's like, it's, it's like wow, you know, you got to raise like your conversation. It's like, okay, you know, and 
And, and it's, it's like, when all you know is baby world and toddler world, and you get with adults, it's like, whoa, hello. And, and they, they enjoy that. Serving in the local church is something we can all relate to. So whether we're serving as a senior pastor and wanting to be well-prepared to teach the word of God as a faithful steward, rightfully dividing the word of truth, or handing Pastor Joey a tic-tac or whatever, uh, or watching someone's kids or, or watching the doors and uh, knowing that on a hot night, I want those doors closed. <laughs> you know, when it's colder in the winter, we can, you know, you know like just understanding, like, it's, yeah, that's what we do. We serve. We're called to serve. And if, if we have servants' hearts, then we're looking, we're in, t- we're in tune with the Lord. We're part of the solution. We're part of the expansion. We're part of the growing. But when we're self, self-serve, when it's self-serving and it's the orbits around us, what happens at church is we find things to pick apart and complain about. Constructive feedback's always good. We understand that. But some people think it's their ministry to pick apart everything that they think is wrong with the church. There are certain people that they want to critique every sermon. They want to critique the worship band. They want to critique the sound mix. They want to critique the stage setup. It's amazing. And, 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 and they, 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 got, they, they got to give their opinion. So instead of just like praying for things and, and praying for leadership and, and, and maybe praying about whether or not that opinion needs to be shared and maybe you can just pray that thing to a good place, it's like without any filtering, you've just got to weigh in that you think the carpet's the wrong color, the bulletin should be a different color, and why doesn't it say this? And, and you know, that was too loud. I don't like those songs. You know, and it's like, uh, it's it just, we don't want to be those people. Like, we want to come to church with a servant's heart and... Not a critical spirit, but one of giving, not of, not of complaining. And fortunately, in the history of this church, there's been very little of the negative and just a whole lot of the positive. And I, I, I thank you for that. And we're, we're always, we want to improve ministry. We want to do things better, you know, and, and um, we do. And as we go forward in this text here at a moment, you'll see, like, we want to have the spirit of humility and teachability, and we are called to submit to one another. And we want to do that. We want to grow. And... Um, but I think if we're just really praying for leadership and we're praying for the church, we, we, we show up and we have a heart. You know, look at Don and Shannon James, who've been doing our junior high for over a year now. They've been at Big Calvary for decades. And their kids are all grown up now. And uh, we're almost, one more in high school, almost done. Um, but they serve here and they serve at Big Calvary. They've, they've been a big part of Calvary Costa Mesa for years. And like... You know, I've never heard them say anything negative about Calvary Costa Mesa in my 15 years plus of knowing them. I've never heard them say a negative thing. They serve like Don's always smiling. If you go there, I think he's a first service usher. Well, now there's two instead of three, but he was like, but he's always smiling. Like he's, he's just smiling, you know, and, and Shannon's always doing something to serve and to help. And like, I don't know, I just think that that's who we want to be. We're going to step into eternity. We want to be servants and we want to be blessings and, and, and we want people to, to come to church and see us and be excited they see us at church, not go like, like that, right? Because there's people like that. There, there's, for whatever reason, at Calvary Costa Mesa, the complainers used to log jam third service. And, uh, you know, all the pastors would try and get out of there at third service and not be the last ones closing up because it would just log jam. And there it is. And you're tired. It's been a draining three, three services. And, 
and you're drained and and you can just see you know like you can just listen you can just see like this person's going to demand 15 minutes maybe we can get it to 10 because or you know they they waited longer and and it's going to be the it's going to be kind of the same thing and we're called to bear one another's burdens so that so that's part of ministry to just hear the same thing over and over and encourage people through those things but if it's just negative and complaining it just kind of takes a lot out of you you know it's like it does so we want to be people of prayer and and in tune with the lord so when we think about the churches where we attend and what we're part of that we just see what can we do to make it better how can we be a blessing how can we build up this work how can we pray for our pastors how can we pray for the ushers how can we pray for the children's ministry workers like just you know we really want to like, how can we pray for the kids that go to this church? How can we pray for the youth that go to this church and really be a part of things? Because if we're not careful, we just have an opinion on everything. And it might be valid, it might not. But God looks at the heart. So I just think that if we have a servant's heart, we're never going wrong. And God will guide us. And he'll honor that. So as we think about serving others, it's not by compulsion. Uh, we don't have to serve others. If you have to serve others, then, man, that's, that's tough. You want to be in your DNA when you come to Christ, serving others. You don't want to be something you have to manufacture. You want to just kind of flow. You want to be fluent in serving others. You don't want to be like dual language app in serving others. Like you speak the language of serving, but it's definitely your second language. You want serving to be your first language. You want to be fluid in the language of serving. And so it's not by compulsion like God's like, you better serve me or else. No, willingly. We want to serve because we want to. God loves a chill forgiver. When we serve others, we're giving of our time and energy. When we serve the Lord, willingly, not begrudgingly. The same principle of giving is the same principle in serving. Not, there's three knots and three positives. So not by compulsion, but willingly. Yeah, like, let's, yeah, let's, let's do it. You know, like, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. So never about money or corruption. Of course, just a long litany of, you know, it's human nature. There's nothing new under the sun. Um, but I figure if you want to get rich, you shouldn't be in ministry. So just know that. If you want to get rich, be an entrepreneur. Figure out how to hack. <laughs> you know, Go to OCC and get in the hacking club. You know, learn some skills that work for the next 50 years, right? You know, how to build apps. You want to get rich, be like my son-in-law, Jacob. You know, like go figure out how to do things that people pay you a lot of money for because they're baby boomers and they can't figure it out. And they just hire millennials who can. You want to serve people, you're going to be a teacher or a pastor. There's a ceiling on your income earnings because it's a service sector. And your gratification comes from not all the wealth and possessions you have, but in losing your life and serving others. That's how that works. The rewards of the career and ministry and teaching and serving others is not in the possessions you gain, but the people you've poured into. And it's, there's great reward in that, to say the least. So it's not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. And by the way, you know, the eagerly really stands out to me because we make time for what we want to do, and we have passion. We, to know our passions, we just need to see what we make time for. If our 
whatever our passions are, like they, they, they show themselves because we make time for it and we'll direct uh, finances toward it. And it's just not, it's just too hard to serve the Lord if there's a skewed motive. The only way to serve the Lord is eagerly because of the joy of the Lord. To serve the Lord eagerly for the joy of the Lord. That's the way to serve the Lord. The thing... You know, great athletes often take less money than inferior athletes because they love what they're doing and they want to win. And it's not about the money. It really isn't. When you look at great, great athletes, they could, many great athletes like your Tom Brady's and Michael Jordan's, they could have got more money under a different circumstance. But they, they take less because it's not even about the money. It's about winning and pursuing that passion that's their passion. It's true. It really is. When, when, when a golfer loses a major on the 18th hole, I just tell my family, I go, it, it, and they're like, well, he's still getting $850,000 for second in the Masters. I say, it's not about $850,000 for uh, you know, Phil Mickelson. It's about winning for Phil Mickelson. Lefty wants the W. He's got tons of money. He already complains about how much the government takes. And then says he's sorry for it because the PGA makes him say he's sorry, right? You know, but like, and you think, oh, that's how it is. Like, people that really love what they do, Edison didn't invent electricity because he was going to get rich from it. He went through a thousand failures in inventing electricity because he had a passion to harness the energy of electricity in God's universe and make it something feasible and beneficial for like us today. So the air conditioner is running and this place is 79 degrees on that thermostat instead of 90 like it was on that one at one this afternoon. Thank you, Thomas Edison. Right? He didn't do it for the money. George Washington Carver, all they did was figure out what you could do with a peanut. It wasn't for the money. It was for the glory of God in his case. Seriously. It, 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 that's how it should be with the Lord. It's not by compulsion or dishonest gain. If it's about the money, you, you know what? You're going to have a short career in professional sports. If it's about the love of the sport and the passion of the battle, and accepting winning and losing, you're, you're going you're gonna to have a long career, because you're going to love. When I, I mentioned this when I was on my flight coming back from Houston in April. The guy serving me, the flight attendant, young Latino guy, about 24, 25, and I noticed he had a wrist guard on, and he was an athlete, you could tell. And I said, hey, what happened? And he goes, oh, I, I, I injured my wrist sliding into second base. I was like, oh, you play baseball. He's like, yeah. I go, are you, uh, you know, like, obviously you're, you're a flight attendant, but you play serious baseball. I was like, yeah, I play semi-pro ball in Houston. Uh, my, my cousin uh, is the first baseman for the Houston Astros. And, uh, of course, are the World Series champions. I go, no kidding. He goes, he goes, yeah. He goes, but you know what? My cousin plays for money. He goes, I pray for the love of the sport. He goes, I love baseball. He goes, I've already, you know, I go, so are you doing, are you staying, are you not playing ball? Like, no, I played last week. Because I love baseball. He goes, my cousin gets paid a lot more money because he's just a better athlete. Because he goes, I love to play baseball. We want to serve the Lord eagerly with, with, a, with a tweaked wrist. Not because we have to, because we, lo- we love the Lord. We just, that's how Chuck expect Pastor Chuck expected people to be on staff. Like, don't you all just want to be here like all day on Sunday? Don't you want to do five services on Easter? He did. You're like, yeah. Don't you want to do two family camps? 
in August? I don't know. <laughs> I did one. I don't think I could ever do another one. Doesn't everyone want to do this? Doesn't everyone want to be here at 6, 6.30 on Sunday morning? Doesn't everyone want to, you know, like, doesn't every pastor who works all day Sunday want to be here at 8.30 on Monday morning and get after it? He just loved serving the Lord. For Chuck, it was never about the money. It was about eagerly because it was his passion. And I think that's a good word for us. Just, and then the last one was not being Lord over others. You know, like some people have to be the boss. Uh, man, <laughs> yeah, that's just, no, it's about being an example. We want to be an example. Leadership's frustrating sometimes, right? Because you're just trying to lead people. You're trying to lead your family. You're trying to lead your kids. You know, like when they become adults, it's a little harder because the cats, it's like herding cats. They're already out of the, you know, it's just, it gets more challenging, right? And you're trying to lead by example and, you know, old saying is someone a leader. The question is, is anyone following? Right? You know, are you a leader? Well, is anyone following? But even with leaders, it's a, it's 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 challenging. The best leader is one who's led. I just say, like, Lord, if I'm led by the Lord, then I can lead for the Lord. But if I'm not led by the Lord, how could I even begin to think I could lead for the Lord? We don't want to try and manufacture that. So we're not trying to rule over people, any of us, in the positions, whatever position God gives you of any authority that seems to be there in anyone's life, whether it be children or business or anything. If you're a shift manager at Starbucks and you got two people working underneath you, it's not to be the boss, it's to be the servant leader. And it's to be an example. Just be an example of how we carry ourselves professionally, how we uh, treat people, how we interact with people, how we respond to authority that's over us. And it's a journey, right? No one's a perfect employee under authority and in authority. It's, it's a process. It's a, learning, it's a learning experience. And we're growing. So what's for me as a pastor, it, you know, to, um, to be an example in how I handle things. Um, I'm to be an example and try and be the best example I can be at any given time for handling a situation. And in the most critical situations, to be an example of, uh, of composure and faith. Again, I go back to 9-11. On uh, 9-11, on that terrible day that you older people remember so well, you know, Pastor Chuck was in Northern California for a conference, and Brian Broderson was in Washington, D.C. when he was Chuck's associate pastor at that time. And it I was at Big Calvary that day, and I got the call in the morning to turn on the TV, and I could not believe what I was watching. I was in shock. We were all in shock. And I knew, I knew that hundreds, if not thousands of people were going to be coming to Calvary Costa Mesa that day for direction, comfort, peace, and with my daughter and my wife as a witness, I calibrated as the towers were coming down that this is going to be perhaps the most profound day of my life as a pastor. And I'm a former senior pastor of two churches, and uh, I believe I was the only senior pastor with senior pastor experience on staff at Calvary with that staff at that time. And I'm like, I'm going to have to lead this church on this day a day that looks like that will live in infamy. 
and it, of course it forever changed us to this day. We're all affected by the changes of that day. And I'll tell you what I did. I sought the Lord. I put on my suit and tie. And I went to Calvary on time. And I told all the pastors, we need to be on our game. We need to open these doors. We need people playing worship all day. And we need to be prepared to minister to the, to the flock of God. Because they're going to come here looking for uh, comfort. And we need to be an example of faith and confidence and stability in the Lord for all these people as they come through these doors. Pastor Chuck will be here soon enough, but we got, we've, this is our day, and we need to be the example of faith, and we were, and hundreds, if not thousands of people did come through that door, and that sanctuary that day, and we did pray all day, and we read Bible verses, and we had different people come up and lead worship off and on, and people were coming by the hundreds all day long. Pastor Chuck got back that night. If you remember, it was a national day of prayer, like two days later, the church was packed, and everyone was looking to Chuck as an example. What do we do? Is this the end of the world? I remember very clear. So let me ask you real quick before we wrap it up tonight. Were any of you involved with Calvary Costa Mesa the week of 9-11? Raise your hand. Does anyone remember that week? Do you remember that week? Yeah, four, three, four hands, counting mine. And of course, my wife and Hannah were a part of that too. I've never experienced anything like it. You see... In day-to-day things, people need an example of a godly Christian woman and a godly Christian man and how they carry themselves. Our kids need an example. Our spouses need an example. Our neighbors need an example. Our kids' sports teams need an example. Church needs an example. The world needs examples of spiritual leadership of godly women and godly men, how we carry ourselves proactively, how we carry ourselves reactively in challenging circumstances. They need an example. And when there's a crisis, a personal crisis, people will come to the church, to you, to people they trust, who are examples for hope, peace, direction, and comfort and answers. They will come to you because you've built that trust with them through your example of serving others in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can minister on a difficult day like the memorial service we had here on Saturday morning, which many of you were at. Because you're called to be the example. Or you minister to a broad community like Pastor Chuck. All those years of the, good, of the fruit sown for decades, to me the zenith of the credibility of his ministry was that week of 9-11. It's as if everyone that ever went to the tent or ever came to that church came to that church that week on those three, four, five days. And they found hope. They found an example of faith and stability. And they continued on with their lives with Jesus Christ. The world wasn't going to end. Jesus is on the throne. It was like the Y2K, right? Same thing. Remember what Chuck said? Your, your electricity's not even going to flicker. I was like, wow, that's pretty bold. <laughs> you know what? It didn't flicker. The world needs examples of servants that are led by the Lord, leading for the Lord. May he help each one of us to be those examples. Amen. Yeah, Lord, we thank you for your word here tonight in these first four verses. And we just pray that we could apply it to our lives. Lord.